flipping through the book of uh, Acts still. Chapter 11 is where we're going to start. We're going to move elsewhere through the New Testament, but chapter 11 this morning, finishing up that chapter, looking at a message entitled, A Lifestyle of Generosity, A Lifestyle of Generosity. I remember uh, 10 years ago now, uh, last month, well, 10 years ago, the end of last year, December, uh, marked the 10-year uh, ten, ten anniversary, if you want to call it that, of me finishing up seminary. Hard to believe 10 years already I've been out. And I remember when I finished up seminary, I came back to Savannah, was here, and uh, was waiting for where God was going to plant me. had no idea it would end up being here in this church, and I've been grateful for that ever since. But I didn't expect that. I, I figured that I would probably end up being in some other place, some other location. I had already wrestled with the Lord over, really wrestled with myself, I guess, over the issue of whether or not to go to the mission field. My mind told me that it was the best investment of my life was to move to the mission field and to give my life uh, for the sake of the gospel, to share the message of the gospel with those that have never heard and would never have an opportunity to. But in my heart, I didn't have that sense that God was calling me there vocationally. And so it was a real struggle. Moved through there. And then after I finished seminary, came back to Savannah, waiting on God to plant me somewhere. And during that period of time, uh, I, was, I was working across town in a temporary job, a couple of different temporary jobs, actually, waiting for God to plant me and for God to place me where I would be. Now, during that time, the car that I drove ultimately breathed its last. It was the car that I had named Buck, and I won't go into that long story. Many of you have heard, many of you haven't, but basically, I paid a dollar for it. It got me through seminary, and that was a good thing. And uh, I think Noah drove it back when he was on the earth, and uh, somewhere around there, I got it as a hand-me-down from Adam, I guess. But So I had that car, and it breathed its last, and, uh, and it kicked the bucket, and I uh, sold it for parts for 50 bucks. <laughs> That's a pretty good increase on your investment, I guess. And... Uh, and so then I was in a place where I needed a vehicle, and there was a couple in our church, and I wasn't the pastor at the time, I was just filling in preaching, no idea that God would plant me here. There's a couple in our church that I have a suspicion would probably want to be anonymous that called me at work one day, and they said, we've got a car that we want to give you, and I said, no, 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 you don't, you don't need to do that, um, I'll be fine, I'll, I'll find a vehicle that, that I'll be able to have, and uh, they said, no, we've, um, we've prayed about this, and this is what we feel like the Lord wants us to do, and we want to give you our vehicle, and I had that car for a couple of years, ultimately, before it finally breathed its last, and it came to the end of its road, it was a great car, one of the best that I had, and I remember not long after Susie and I were married, uh, it finally quit running, and she followed me uh, all the way across town to the Goodwill and Eisenhower in second gear <laughs> to, to drop it off so that they could do whatever they wanted to do with it, but try to pass it on back, and uh, it was just a tremendous blessing in my life, one that I will always remember of how it met a need, not only a need, but also a great, a tr- gave a tremendous amount of encouragement during a 17-month period of time that would come when I was waiting for God to plant me where I was ready to be. And so there was a great encouragement that came, and it showed me that there is a great, great blessing to receiving, being on the receiving end of one's generosity, but also I'm sure they would say that there's a great blessing that comes with being on the giving end of generosity as well. You know, we live in a culture where it is no longer... um, it is not easy for us to be generous people. You know, television is beginning to capture a sense of that. It seems like every new show now that comes on is kind of off the, uh, off the mold of the uh, extreme home makeover where people invest and people give. Many of you were part of that even here locally, I'm sure. And you know what it feels like to give. And there are a lot of new shows that are coming out now that, that kind of run that, run that route of generosity. But it's a hard lesson for many of us to learn that God wants us to be uh, people who live a lifestyle of generosity, not just a one-time instance, but God wants us to live a lifestyle 
lifestyle of generosity. And I think for many of us, we have a tendency to become re- very isolated in our lives. Isolated and skeptical, perhaps, are the two words that describe the state of many believers, many people in this world. We get isolated to the point to where we feel like, you know, I've got my stuff, and I've got my issues, and I've got my obstacles in life, and I'll handle my stuff, and you handle your stuff, and your issues, and your obstacles in your own life. And there may be a few times when we cross the aisle, so to speak, and we engage our lives one with another, but for the most part, our mentality is is that I've got my ball of wax, I've got my goods, my possessions, my finances, I've got my issues in life, I've got my obstacles to deal with, and you've got your own. And we're going to just kind of deal with our own as they come, and you'll be okay, and I'll be okay, and maybe we'll talk about it somewhere down the road, but this is mine, and that's yours, and we become very, very isolated in our lives. And then we also become very skeptical, even as Christians, because if we're not careful, we come to the place to where we we desire or we require people to actually earn our generosity. In other words, I'll give, and I may extend a hand to help you, and I'll, I'll, I'll dig into my pocket or into my wallet, and I'll, give, I'll be generous to you as long as you earn my generosity. As long as you prove to me that you're worthy of my generosity, and then perhaps there, I'll demonstrate it in your life. And we've come to a place to where we have a real tendency as Christians. I'm not talking outside the walls of the church, I'm talking inside. We have a tendency to become very isolated and very, very skeptical. But when we get to Acts chapter 11 here, at the close of this chapter, when we get to this point here in the church in Antioch, a very young church, a new church, we begin to see that that was not their mindset. Skepticism, isolation were nowhere to be found in this, the lives of these early believers, but rather they lived and they demonstrated a lifestyle of generosity. You know, the reason that, that uh, there can be no room for isolation and skepticism is because there are a lot of places in the Bible that deal with the one another passages of Scripture. And don't try to capture these as I mention them because I'll move too quickly. But just, just let me remind you of a few of these places in the Bible where it talks about one another. Romans chapter 12, it says we are to honor one another. Romans 15, it says we are to accept one another. 1 Peter 5, we are to clothe ourselves with humility towards one another. Ephesians 4, we are to be kind and compassionate to one another. Romans 12, be devoted to one another. 1 Peter 4, offer hospitality to one another. 1 Thessalonians 5, encourage one another. And Galatians 6, we are to carry one another's burdens. And so there's no room really for an attitude of isolation or skepticism. We are to demonstrate a lifestyle of generosity in accordance with what the pages of Scripture tell us. And I would say there are two great examples that we're going to look at this morning. One is in Acts chapter 11, and the other we'll get to further in the New Testament. And so Acts chapter 11 paints for us a picture of of a lifestyle of generosity, how it begins and what it looks like. So let me just give you one principle we're going to unpack this morning. Hope you'll jot it down. I hope that you won't just be quick to listen and slow to apply, but I hope you'll not only listen, but that your heart will be very, very challenged through what we look at this morning. And let me just say, one of the reasons I love preaching through passages of Scripture is because when you come to the tough passages, you know that you got there. It's the Bible's fault that got us there in that timing. I'm not picking on anything. I'm not picking on anybody. Just dealing with the passage as it comes. This morning, I'll say... That if you're willing to listen attentively, if you have a heart for God, if you don't have a heart for God, it's probably not going to make much of an impact anyway. But if you have a real heart to live a life that honors the Lord Jesus Christ, this passage is going to hurt for some. It's going to be very, very challenging. And and like going to a doctor and he begins to press. And when he finds that spot where you say, ow, don't push there anymore, he knows he's got something. And he knows where to go to work to bring about the ultimate good for you. It's going to be much the same this morning for some, I'll just say. Because the scripture is going to be very, very clear And the pattern is going to be uh, very, very clear. And there will not only be admonitions and commands, but also examples that we'll have a hard time getting away from. 
that will put us in a position to have to decide what are we going to do in regards to a lifestyle of generosity. Let me just say this. I am not talking this morning about tithing. That is a separate issue. The Bible is very clear in regards to the command for us to be faithful to give in regards to tithes and offerings. This is a lifestyle of generosity. When you read of these people in Scripture that are giving, it is not in the context of tithing. This is not a sermon on tithing. I don't ever back away from preaching those when they come. But this is an area, a message that deals with the aspect of generosity and the great need for it in the lives of those who claim the name of Christ this morning. Principle number one that we're going to look at, and we'll begin to unpack it as we work through this passage, is this. It costs far more to neglect generosity than it does to practice it. Now, I will, I will understand as we get into this passage of Scripture that for you, it's a numbers-crunching issue. Brooks, I don't know that I can afford to be generous. I don't know that I can afford to extend not just a hand, but even to dig into a pocket or to open a wallet or to cut a check. I don't know that I can afford to live a lifestyle of generosity. And for you, it's a numbers-crunching issue. I just want to really challenge your thinking from the very first that this is not a numbers-crunching issue. This is a passage-crunching issue. This is a verse-crunching issue. And what we have to look at is not the state of our finances as to whether or not we'll live a lifestyle of generosity. What we have to look at is what does the Bible say clearly? And if there is already a clear demonstration of what God requires and expects and desires of us, it's not an issue of crunching numbers, it's an issue of evaluating and crunching the Word of God and then applying it to our lives and, apply, and adjusting our lives to, apply, uh, to, to, uh, to conform to what Scripture already says. And I will promise you that it will cost you far more, it will cost me far more to neglect generosity than it does to practice it. In Acts chapter 11, what we find here is a a group of Christians that have been scattered. And it started back in Acts chapter 8. They were scattered across the world as a result of persecution. And that persecution that scattered these early believers sent them packing from the church in Jerusalem to other regions of the world. The gospel has gone to Samaria, it's gone to Gentiles, it has begun to reach into other regions of the world. And earlier in chapter 11, it makes its way to Antioch. Now, Antioch is a strategic city. In this point in time, in the book of Acts, it was the third largest uh, uh, city in the uh, ancient world behind Rome and behind Alexandria. It had been fa- uh, formed about 300 years before it was founded, before these early disciples uh, uh, began to walk through the pages of the book of Acts. It was settled there on the, the Orontes River, which was a major trading route for caravans that would pass through that region. And so as a result of that, it grew very, very rapidly. It grew very quickly. It was a city filled with culture, but it was also a city filled with pagan worship. There were false, uh, uh, false worship that took place there, false deities that were honored, that were revered, even to the point to where temple prostitution would take place under the name of religion, and it was honored in that culture. It was a very dark city. Religion was prevalent, but Christ was absolutely absent until these early believers brought the message of the gospel there. And so as the, as the gospel message was, was proclaimed there, the Bible tells us in chapter 11, uh, verse 21, that a large number believed in and turned to the Lord. And so a church was planted there. We find there in chapter 11 also that uh, Saul and Barnabas, or Paul and Barnabas, planted themselves there for one year, pouring into these new believers. And you can expect that that city of Antioch was uh, absolutely inundated with the message of the gospel as these early believers took the message of Christ into that culture and into that city. And so we find here as we move forward through the book of Acts that they will come to a place where they learn of great need. And what we'll see in their response is that they understood that it costs us far more to neglect 
generosity than it does for us to practice it. So pick up with me there in Acts chapter 11, verse 27. We're going to finish out the chapter this morning and then jump a little further into the New Testament. Acts 11, verse 27. It says, now at this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Let let me just stop there for a moment. Antioch is in modern-day Turkey. Jerusalem, obviously, still the same place today in Israel. Now, this is a sizable distance between the two. You've got Antioch, modern-day Turkey, to the north, and then Jerusalem to the south. It says there, after these prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch, verse 28, one of them, named Agabus, stood up, and he began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. Now again, remember, this church in Antioch is about a year old now. They have learned of this need in the city of Jerusalem. The Christians in Jerusalem were impoverished, partly perhaps because they were still living under Roman rule. They were impoverished. This was the, uh, the, the, the beginning of the Christian movement began in the city of Jerusalem when the church was born there on Pentecost back in Acts chapter 2. And so this church being planted in Antioch was an outflow of the faithfulness of these believers in the church in Jerusalem. And now these believers in Antioch, just early on in their Christian faith, learn of this need, and it comes as a result of a famine. Now, Claudius would reign from the year 41 to 54. He would be the emperor during that period of time in that region of the world. Uh, The church historian Josephus tells us that there was indeed a famine that struck Israel in the years 45 and 46, and that famine was so severe that people were dying from hunger because they did not have the financial resources to purchase what little food was available in that part of the world. People were dying from hunger as a result of this famine that struck that region. And the Christians in Antioch learned that their Christian family in Jerusalem was suffering as a result of this famine. What was their response? Their response was, verse 29, that in proportion to their means, they chose to give. It says they determined to send a contribution. What for? For the relief of the brethren, of the fellow Christians that were living in Judea. All of this came about as a result of a prophecy by a man named Agabus. We don't know much about him. Some of you may think, well, there it is. There's an open door for us to stand and claim anything under the name of Christ. You have to understand, this man was a prophet prophesying in New Testament times. The canon of Scripture was not yet closed. The Bible, New Testament-wise, was being written still. This was not uncommon for someone directed by the Holy Spirit to stand and to speak as God had led Now today we often hear in different uh, circles that there is yet another preacher who stands up with a new word from God. We need to be very, very hesitant, very, very cautious. It's one thing to say, I believe God has led me. It's another to say, God spoke to me and here's what he said. There's no way to test that. But in the first century, it was certainly permissible because the canon of Scripture had not been closed. The New Testament was still being written. God moved on the heart of this man, Agamus, to prophesy. And these Christians in Antioch took him at his word. What he prophesied, by the way, came to pass, obviously. And they collected a contribution to send to the Christians many, many, many miles away in Jerusalem. There was no attitude in those Christians in Antioch that said, hey, listen, we've had hard times, we've pulled ourselves up, they can pull themselves up, let them fend for themselves. There was no attitude in those Christians in Antioch when they looked at the need of the the fellow believers in Jerusalem 
There was no attitude that said, hey, what we've got is our stuff, and what they've got is their stuff. They can handle their stuff. We'll deal with our stuff. There was no attitude of that. There was no skepticism. There was no isolation. They knew when they heard of the need, and God pressed on their hearts that you need to be an answer to that need. They were faithful, and they demonstrated faithfulness to give generously. They were determined to do it for the sake of those who suffered. They understood the simple principle that it costs us far more to neglect generosity than it does for us to practice it. Now, there would be a situation that would come up later in the New Testament in, first, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. In fact, turn there with me, if you will. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, just a few books forward in your New Testament. There would be a situation that would be very, very similar to what we just read of in Acts chapter 11. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. The church in Corinth certainly had its issues. It lived in a pagan, it was a pagan city, and the church operated in a pagan culture. They certainly had their issues inside the church. And what Paul had done was, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, we find that he is encouraging these believers in Corinth to complete the commitment they had made to give again towards the need of the Christians in Jerusalem. Now this is years later, but you find these Jerusalem Christians are again in, tight, in a tight situation. They are in need of finances. And Paul here in 2 Corinthians 8 is encouraging the church at Corinth to complete the commitment it had made to give generously to those believers. Now what you'll find here as we work through this chapter, a portion of it, is that you'll find that Paul points to churches in the region of Macedonia, across the, uh, the Mediterranean. He will point to those churches that had been so generous to give towards the saints in Jerusalem, and he uses them as an example. He points to them as a pattern. And so when we read through 2 Corinthians 8 here, I'm going to pull out quite a few principles that I think will be a help for you. You won't see them on the overhead screen, but just listen as we work through it. Things that will be a great challenge to us to live a lifestyle of generosity and so again, the context is that Paul is writing to the church at Corinth. He's using the churches in Macedonia as an example to spur these Corinthian believers to give generously. So listen to what he says, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. What he paints is a picture that even poverty does not exclude us from generosity. Read what he says. He says, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. What Paul says there is that even though those believers in the Macedonian churches had very little, even though they were impoverished, even though they had nothing to their name, when they heard of the need of the Christians down in Jerusalem, they were so moved and so struck by that that they chose to give and to give liberally out of a heart of generosity, not tithes, not offerings, a generous heart they chose to give for the benefit of those believers. And it's interesting what Paul says. If you look down in verse, at the end of verse 2, he says their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality, not the wealth of their finances. Their finances were not their, their wealth. Their wealth was their generosity. 
They were rich in generosity, Paul says, and even poverty did not exclude them from being generous. I've made three trips to the Philippines now. Some of you have made more than I've made. We've taken 10 or 11 now as a church, about to take another one this summer. We go into the same region every time, and it blows me away how you go into a home and you... uh, I go to visit, you bring just a simple little gift, a little shoebox that many of you send, and the people there in those homes come, and they, uh, they bring out chairs, and they bring out food, and they bring out something to drink, and what they have, they offer to you, even though they don't have hardly anything at all. And where they are impoverished financially, I'm telling you, they are rich in regards to generosity. And, and somewhere along the way, the church in our culture, in our country today, has missed that principle. But Paul points out that even poverty does not exclude us from generosity. These believers in Macedonia and those churches understood the need to give generously, and they did, even though they had nothing to their name. Chapter 8 also shows us that participation in generous giving was strongly desired. Look at what it says in verse 3 and verse 4. Paul says, For I testify that according to their ability, these Macedonian believers, and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation and the support of the saints. I mean, that verse, verse 4, just, just an incredible verse. Begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. You know, it's amazing when you look at ministry, how many people beg to do the things that put them in a spotlight. Oh God, if you have a heart for Jesus, I just want to preach in a bigger church. I want to be involved in an evangelistic ministry that will put me in front of the thousands. And people clamor for something that will put them on a stage or put them on a platform or put them behind a microphone, put them in print, put them on television. And yet when it comes down to the nuts and bolts of ministry where most lives are impacted, nobody seems to raise their hand to say, let me do that. Let me invest my life in a group of three-year-olds for the sake of the gospel. Let me go hit an area of the world where I might get shot for the gospel's sake. I went online just recently looking up a friend of mine that I knew well in seminary. His name was Jose Jose is from Venezuela, uh, had a, a baseball career in college, came to Christ, left baseball, went into the mission, uh, to the ministry, ultimately is now involved in international missions. He's about six seven, had a heater of a fastball, they say, but he gave it all up to follow Christ. I went, I found him online just these past two weeks, and I listened to his testimony there online. He, was a, he is a very, very passionate individual, and the first 30 seconds of his testimony, he talks about how he was doing a, a, a crusade in Buenos Aires and was shot three times. Where, where are the hands going up? For, Lord, will you send me there? When was the last time, and, and I have to point at myself, when's the last time I begged God, God, please let me dig deeper in my, in my pockets to give what you first given to me to the needs of another person who's hurting? Again, we're not talking about tithes, offerings. We're talking about generosity. When's the last time that we begged God, God, please, I beg you, use me, use my resources, use my finances, use my stuff to make a difference in the lives of those who hurt. These believers in Macedonia had nothing, and they're saying, God, here we are. Here we are. Use us. We'll give. <laughs> Even their poverty did not exclude them from a lifestyle of generosity. Participation in giving generously was strongly desired. Third thing that comes out of chapter 8 is that their generosity was a ministry. Verse 4, it says that, that they gave for the support of the saints. Let me just say this, and I'll, I'll move on. That when you and when I choose to give generously... And whenever that giving is supported by prayer and it's partnered with the gospel, the name of Jesus Christ, I'm telling you, there is, there is no end to what God can do as a result of that. 
And I'm not just talking about shoeboxes packed with stuff sent to the Philippines where many, many people come to Christ. We're right now looking, I'll, I'll make mention of this, still looking to see if it'll all come to pass. My great desire is that later on in the summer, that we do much the same of what we do in the Philippines right here locally. We've uh, begun to partner in ministry uh, at Fred Wessels and the, uh, the Wessels Project there in Savannah downtown. My desire is that we come to the place, hopefully, we'll still have to work out the details, so don't put this out anywhere on Facebook or whatever, but we're going to hopefully work out the details where we can uh, sponsor kids that live in that particular project and purchase them a backpack for school next year when that backpack is delivered, have an opportunity to hopefully build relationships, to share the gospel, and to see what God does over the long haul with that. And what you do is when you look at at, at generosity, generous giving, it is amazing how far our generosity can go when it's supported by prayer and partnered with the name of Jesus Christ, with the message of the gospel. And these believers got it. They understood that whenever they chose to give, it was in support of the saints. It was for a mission purpose. And it had a ministry context to it. Chapter 8 also shows us for these believers that their generosity was an outflow of their surrender to God and their surrender to others for that matter. Look at verse 5. Speaking of the generosity of these Macedonian Christians, he says, verse 5, and this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. I don't think it would be far off based on that verse to say, not you, but we. When we choose not to demonstrate generosity, the issue has very little to do with finances, and it has very much to do with the condition of our heart. For these believers, they had first surrendered themselves to God. God pushes on their heart and says, your brothers and sisters in Jerusalem have need, and I've already given to you for you to give to them. And they responded. They were attuned to that prompting by God because they were surrendered to the Lord in the first place. Can we say perhaps that the reason there is not more generosity demonstrated by those who claim the name of Christ, not tithes, not offerings, just simple, sheer, generous giving to, those, to others, the reason there's not more of that is because we're not first completely, totally surrendered to God in every area of our lives, especially in the area of possessions and finances. It's what it sounds as though it says to me. In fact, I would go so far as to say that whenever we claim an inability to be generous because of a, an overly sufficient lifestyle, <laughs> or at worst, a lavish lifestyle, whenever we say, God, I, I can't be generous, I can't give to those in need, I'm not in a position to do so, while at the same time we are supporting uh, an overly sufficient, if not outright lavish, lifestyle. When we say, God, I can't do it because of these bills that I've got to pay, you know, and this is a hard world, and, you know, things are not going so well, and I've got all these things that I've got to cover, and I've got all these things I need to pay for. Whenever we say that and we adopt that mentality, it is not an issue of finances, it is an issue of the heart. Charles Spurgeon, famous preacher years ago, was invited to a country church that was in debt. 
One of the wealthy members of that church sent him a letter and invited him, please, would you come and preach in our congregation? The expectation was that when the great Spurgeon came to town, he began to preach and he began to hit on that subject. The people's hearts would be moved and they'd begin to give. And because of Spurgeon's arrival and his great speaking and everything that he would have to say, this church would find their debt ultimately paid and they'd be outside, out from underneath that burden. And so this wealthy member of the church sent him a telegram, sent him a letter, said, Spurgeon, would you please come, outline the details and said, in fact, we'd be so glad for you to come. You can stay in one of my three homes. You can either stay in my townhouse, you can stay in my country house, or I've got a home by the sea. You pick whichever one you want to come. We'll make you most comfortable, and if you'll just come and be with us and challenge us in this area. Spurgeon received the letter. He graciously replied by letter, declining the invitation. And in the letter, he said, you'd be better served to sell one of those homes, pay your debt yourself, for I'm not coming. That's hard. (laughs) You mean God... If my life is overly satisfied to the point to where I'm so comfortable because of choices I've made with what you've given me, if I'm perhaps even overboard to the point where I'm not even overly sufficient, I'm just lavish in my lifestyle, (laughs) are you telling me that I very possibly, very possibly may be in sin? It is not a sin to be wealthy. There are prominent people in Scripture, Solomon being one of the most noted that was wealthy. But whenever our wealth gets in the way of our generosity, whenever it becomes an obstacle rather than an enhancement to our deeper walk with God, that's what the Bible calls idolatry, and it is sin. It's just that clear. Is it a sin to be rich? No, it's not. Is it a sin to allow riches to come between you and God? Yes, it is. Well, these early believers understood these Macedonian churches, was that their generosity was an outflow of their surrender to God and their surrender to others. If a believer has so much stuff, if a believer has so many things that he has committed to, if a believer has so many things in his life that he must pay for, that he is not in a position to be obedient in the area of tithes and offerings, but even in regards to generous giving, then a decision has to be made. It's not an issue of finances, it's an issue of the heart, and either we have to decide that we're going to cut strings to those things that keep us from being obedient and ultimately obey the Lord, or we're going to be held hostage to our own desires and suffer spiritually as a result. Does that make sense? Thanks. It's easy to say. It's hard to apply. But there's a world dying while we live richly. Why does it take a sermon to, to stir our hearts to be generous? Why does it take an event to stir us to be generous? Why cannot we just look at the pages of Scripture where the pattern has been displayed, where the commands have been given, and just choose, Lord, because I have been given much, and to whom much is given, much is required, because you have blessed me lavishly, though I didn't deserve a bit of it. Why can't we just read the words of Scripture and say, God, I will obey and I'll walk deeply with you, and when you stir my heart to give, I'll do it, knowing that you'll meet my needs, and knowing that you'll use what I'll offer to make a difference in the lives of others. Generous giving is a barometer of the spiritual condition of the Christian's heart. The next thing that comes out of chapter 8 is that their generosity was on level with other areas of their Christian walk. Look at what it says down in verse 7. 
Paul says of these Macedonian Christians, he says, But just as you abound in everything, in faith, and utterance, and knowledge, and in all earnestness, and in the love we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work also. You know, that, it's interesting because Paul mentions some pretty important spokes there to the Christian life. The hub is a relationship with Jesus, but off that hub comes spokes like on your bicycle wheel. He mentions things like love, he mentions earnestness, He mentioned specifically knowledge and faith. Those are important spokes that come off of that hub of our relationship with Christ. And he adds to that wheel the spoke of generosity. And he says at the end of verse 7, See that you abound in this gracious work also. In other words, as a result of your surrendered walk with God, there will be times when God pours into your life for the purpose of pouring out. You know the couple that I mentioned earlier, the car that they gave to me? They had purchased that car themselves just previously, just prior And I believe that if I could give you their name and if you were to corner them in a hallway somewhere, they would agree wholeheartedly, God led us to make that choice because we were a flow-through into the life of another person. That car was never ours. It was always God's. And God just intended that we secure it so that we could pass it on to a brother in Christ who had a need at that particular time. And for us, if we can understand that the finances and the possessions and the things and the gifts and the talents that God gives us are not primarily for us, that many times, yes, they are to bless us, and yes, they are for us to be able to enjoy, but, but many, many times, he's going to give so that he'll prompt our heart to pass it on. And when we pass it on, we partner with him in ministry. We're able to see him use what we've given, partner or, or, or associate with the name of Christ to make a difference in a person's life. And we've understood the simple truth and the simple fact that it costs us far more to neglect generosity than it does to just practice it. And so their generosity was on level with other areas of their Christian life. Verse 9 shows us that their generosity was patterned after the grace and the generosity of Jesus himself. Look at what it says in verse 9. Paul doesn't try to guilt trip them into giving generously. He doesn't try to tell them how much they've got and and just make them feel guilty. He, He just points to the cross. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Paul says, it's the grace that frees you to be generous. It's the grace of God that gives you the assurance that when he says give, and you do, that he's going to be there to meet the needs that come in your life. And no, we don't go launching out on our, just on a, on a crazy whim, shoot from the hip, I'm going to give you know, whatever, some large sum of money to some specific need. No, this is in response to what God leads us to do. Again, Paul wasn't guilt-tripping people. He was just telling them, walk deep with God. There are churches in Macedonia that walk deeply with God. They understand that what they have is his, not theirs. And whenever they walk deeply with God, there are instances when God spurs them and he pricks their heart and he says, here's an area to give. And they respond and they're all the better for it. He's not saying put yourself in a ditch somewhere because you sell your house and get rid of everything you own and then you have to go knock it on doors for your next meal. He said, just be responsive to God. And there are things that he will give to you that ultimately will make their way to another and you'll be the richer for it. And he points to the cross as the ultimate pattern. And then at the end of that that passage, verses 10 through 14, we see that Paul would point to us that generosity is to be a lifestyle, not an event. Look at what he says, verse 10. He says, I give my opinion in this matter, for this is to your advantage. Who were the first to begin, he says to the Corinthian church, 
You were first to begin a year ago, not only to do this, but also to desire to do it. But now finish doing it also. See, they had quit giving for some reason. So that just as there was the readiness to desire it, so there may be also the completion of it by your ability. For if the readiness is present, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For this is not for the, for the ease of others and for your affliction, but by way of equality. At this present time, your abundance being a supply for their need, so that their abundance also may become a supply for your need, that there may be equality. See, this was a lifestyle. It wasn't a one-time, hear the story, grit your teeth, okay, I'm going to do this, and then it's done. Good. That's good for the next 10 years. I'm not giving a dime. No, this was a lifestyle understanding that you are rich because of Christ. What you have is not your own. It will cost you more if you choose to neglect generosity than to practice it. And so just partner with God. Let him call the shots and give as he directs. So what about you? Would a glance at your life demonstrate a lifestyle of generosity Or would it demonstrate something less? If time would allow, I could point you to scriptures and proverbs that would tell of the blessing of the generous man. I could point you to Paul's letter to Timothy that gives us the command to be rich in good works and to be generous. And I could also point to passages that talk about the downfall of the greedy who chooses to use what we have for ourselves. Perhaps tipping of the hat every now and then, but the lifestyle is a lifestyle of consumption, not a lifestyle of generosity. The picture, the pattern, is nothing less than the cross itself. When the one who had everything left it so that he could simply die for you, die for me. With heads bowed and eyes closed this morning, for the believers amongst us, I think the challenge is clear. This early church in Antioch, just a year old, they got it. They understood. They understood the beauty of a lifestyle of generosity, and they gave the believers in Jerusalem benefited because of them. Down the road, the Christians in Corinth would look to the Macedonian churches who got it. They as well would give to the believers impoverished in Jerusalem to help meet needs. Time and time again, we see displayed in the life of the Lord Jesus himself and commanded in Scripture that the picture is a picture of generosity. Oh, we're not saved by our giving. Our giving flows out of our salvation. We surrender ourselves to him. And then we're responsive in those times when he says, I've given you this to pass on to another. There is a thin line between generosity and idolatry. And for the believer who understands that it costs far more for us to neglect it than it does to practice it, has taken a big step indeed. For some this morning, perhaps your greatest need is the need for Jesus, the one we've spoken of today. The cross was the pattern of the, of the generosity of these early believers because they, they saw on the cross their Lord Jesus who died for them three days later would rise again. And it was in his poverty that they were given the ability to be made right with God. His sacrifice paid for their sin. And though sinful and separated, they could come in response to the gospel, in repentance and faith, giving their lives to Jesus, 
And they would be given more than they would ever deserve, forgiveness included. And so for some this morning, perhaps you're here today, and the greatest need of your life is not to apply this message in regards to looking to be generous in your, in your lifestyle, but the application for you is to receive the Lord Jesus who died for you in your place and to yield your life, surrender to him.